Hi, this is Dr. Lat Mansour, Research Lead of Health via Modern Nutrition here on HVMN Podcast. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Molly Malouf, entrepreneur, medical doctor, Ivy League educator, and an author to her new book, The Spark Factor. In this episode, we talked about optimizing mitochondria for a healthier, stronger, and more resilient future. We covered topics such as mitochondria and immunity, importance of microbiome, tips around fasting and exercise, different hormonal regulations in menstrual cycle, also optimizing orgasms to improve health. So if you're intrigued, please tune in and enjoy this episode. Hello, Dr. Molly Malouf. Thank you very much for coming on Health via Modern Nutrition podcast. And I know you have been on before interviewed by Jeff. It's my honor to interview you this time and uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so today we are very excited to have you and talking about your book that will come out in a couple of weeks' time um, called The Spark Factor. But before we go into the details of your book, let's um, introduce yourself to our audience, to our listeners, who you are, what your background is, and, and you know what your passion is. Sure. Um, so my name is Dr. Molly. I am a medical doctor by training. Started my career in California, worked in Silicon Valley for about 10 years, optimizing the health of executives, investors, and entrepreneurs, and concurrently working with a lot of early-stage startups. Um, I've worked with over 50 companies, helping, them to, helping to advise them or consult with them for product development, clinical research, scientific marketing, clinical strategy. I still advise about maybe 15 companies right now. Um, I just finished a book called The Spark Factor, which is getting published uh, momentarily this month. And... Um, Basically, it was a book that was based off this course I taught at Stanford, which was all about health span extension. So I taught at Stanford for three years before moving to Austin and starting a new life out here. Um, and really, I wanted to write a book for women about biohacking because I just felt like it was time for one to be written from a woman, woman's perspective. And you know, we have these really interesting hormonal cycles every month that do affect the ways that we need to biohack. They can affect our, how we eat, how we exercise. And I wanted to talk about sort of my personal belief, which is that if you want to live a long and healthy life and have really extended health span, then you really got to optimize and pay attention to your mitochondria. So I'm kind of a mitochondriac, kind of obsessed with mitochondrial theory of aging, pretty much a nerd at heart, but um, always on the cutting edge of what's new. And one of my blurbs for my book, Kara Fitzgerald, this doctor, she was like, Dr. Molly is sometimes it takes a radical approach to health. And I was like, you know what? I guess I can't, I guess some people might think that because I, I do tend to do things before they're mainstream. I tend to uh -huh. be on like the trends of what's what's coming next. And sometimes I even help spark trends. There you go. Hey, I mean, the spark factor. So no pun intended, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, no pun but intended there. It sounds, it sounds like you're such a busy woman. You sounds like you've got three doppelgangers working 30 hours a day in three different cities, you know what I mean? Like, you know, advising all these companies, CEO of Adamo Bioscience, um, you have your own, you know, healthcare practice. So I am so honored to, to speak to you hey. and um, absolutely very interested to hear more about the Spark Factor, supercharge your batteries for limitless energy and fitter and a fitter, stronger, more resilient future. So in the book, you sort of mention um, women were the original biohackers. Tell us more about why you say so. Sure. I mean, so women have the responsibility to create life 
And so as a result, we have these incredible hormonal cycles every month that um, if you are in your fertile years, basically gives you, you're, you're basically four different women every month. Like the first part of your month, the follicular phase, you're like super outgoing and you have all this energy and you can go to the gym and you can hit your personal best and you can eat, you know, carbs and metabolize them easily. And then you hit your ovulatory phase and you're the most attractive. You're the most, like you can just see your body literally look different when you're in, when you're ovulating. Um, and you can actually time your ovulation using apps now and just learning how your body responds to ovulation. Like it'll change your, your vaginal secretions. It'll change your body temperature. And then your luteal phase comes along and you're like a little bit more inward oriented the longer you get into that phase. And like so the more you get, you know, basically your progesterone's rising. Your estrogen is not as high as it was in follicular phase. And, um, but you do have a high, higher amount of hormones flowing around because of all the progesterone. And uh, if, you did, if you didn't get pregnant, of course. And as a result, you know, you're a little bit less um, carbohydrate sensitive. You have to be a little bit more careful with your carb intake, but yet you crave carbs around your period. You crave chocolate. You need more magnesium. Your stress levels go up a bit. And so you just feel a little bit more on edge. And then you don't really want to be as social. And then you hit your menstrual cycle and really dependent on the woman will determine like how her menstrual cycle is going to go. But mm -hmm. your menstrual cycle is a direct reflection into how you're handling your existence in your life. I mean... When I look at when I look at my menstrual cycle and, and it's consistently if it's balanced if it's every twenty eight days if it's five days, I know that I'm like on track with my health and I look at it as almost a barometer of my health. But when I was under a lot of stress, which by the way, I wouldn't say that I would recommend writing a book, starting a company, and running a practice at the same time. I'm like not <laughs> recommending that. It definitely threw me off a little bit this year because I was just doing way too many things all at once. But I could use my period to be basically like, oh, you need to make some changes in your health, Molly. Like my period got really heavy. I had some emotional challenges with a guy that I was seeing. And I realized like when I was writing this book that women can look at their menstrual cycle and they can actually see how well they're mastering their emotional response, how well they're handling their day-to-day their -day stressors. Because your body and your mitochondria are constantly sensing and integrating signals and trying to decide where to direct your energy and what to do with it. And mm -hmm. so you have this beautiful body that's like helping you understand, are you in survival mode? Am I in like total survival stress mode? Or am I in like, let's reproduce and have a baby mode? And that, like when, when you see your menstrual cycle get thrown off, if you see it's late or too early, it's often a reflection of too much stress. And your mitochondria are actually responsible for metabolizing cortisol and for produce, for actually the, 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 the progesterone will go into the mitochondria and it'll actually play a role in producing cortisol. But then mm -hmm. you're on the outer mitochondrial membrane. You have these enzymes that actually produce, that help you metabolize epinephrine and norepinephrine. So you, your mitochondria are literally kind of deciding for your body where you're going to direct your energy and why. Is it you're trying to fight an infection? Is it you're trying to have a baby? Or is it that you're trying to defend yourself against an, an, against you know an, an, an ongoing you know dangerous situation outside of you? And your body does this in, intuitively in order to help you thrive and adapt to the world around you. So yeah. I you know I, I I wouldn't say I'm necessarily like in perfect health all the time, right. but I do think that optimal health is how well you're adapting to those demands in your life and how well are you bouncing back from getting sick. That's that's an amazing statement right there, which I will want to you know go really deep into that statement in a bit. I have a couple of questions with what you just explained as well. For our listeners, could you just explain briefly what 
cortisol is, what not epinephrine and epinephrine, like what do they do so that they have a clearer sense of what you just explained? Sure. So I tend to use a lot of big words. It's always often forget that I, not everybody knows what these things mean, but you have two, you know, you've, you basically two primary classes of stress hormones. The one is the fast acting, the epinephrine, norepinephrine. It's like this, this will get you, you know, when, when, when you hear about those stories about how a child was pinned under a car and a mom was able to lift that car up. Well, that's typically your, your, your epinephrine and norepinephrine or also known as adrenaline um, at work. It's what gets you out of danger. It's what helps you. It's really designed to get you to move, which is part of the reason why when people take stimulants, they, these stimulants increase stress hormones. And so mm-hmm. stress hormones get you to move. They get you to focus. They get you to mm-hmm. adapt immediately in the moment. Cortisol mm-hmm. is a bit longer acting. And it's basically going to basically going to rise over time with consistent stress, more chronic stress. So mm-hmm. I recently measured my cortisol levels because I was like, oh, I'm waking up a little bit stressed in the morning. I'm feeling a little bit on edge right when I get out of bed. And every time I have coffee in the morning, I'm starting to feel a little bit like more stressed. I'm more anxious. I wonder if my cortisol levels are high. And I measured my, my, my urine cortisol in my morning, my uh, mid-morning, afternoon, and evening. And of course, what did I discover? Well, my morning cortisol is off the charts. And so mm-hmm. what did that tell me? That tells me I need to cut back on caffeine. So I've been weaning off of caffeinated coffee, switching to decaf, switching to tea, switching to lower like lower caffeine products like mud water. Yeah. And I've also been changing up my exercise regimen. I've been cutting back on the – I was doing a lot of heavy lifting. And I had – I mean, I was in great shape. But I did get hit with um, with COVID about a month ago. And, oh, no. and it was not fun. And yeah. since I, I mean, I went to Burning Man and so I was around crowds. So I was at Burning Man for three days and I got back with COVID. And it was one of those things where I got to actually pull in a lot of my biohacks in the book because I talk about how to handle COVID in the book. I went and I, and by day three of this sickness, I was like, I need to go get, because you can't, I couldn't get antibodies, unfortunately, but I could get ozone. So I went and I got ozone. And one, what people, one of the things people don't realize about ozone is that you're, you're basically getting an infusion of oxygen into your cells. And when you are sick and you're immobile and you're not moving a lot, you're not getting a lot of good oxygenation in your body. And that actually is a problem for fighting off infection. So you mm-hmm. need oxygen for your mitochondria to function properly. Your mitochondria actually play a role. And these are the powerhouses of the cells, right? But they also are like, they're doing a lot of different things. They actually help direct your immune system to function properly. So they, they, pl- they, they work with your immune system and they help you, you know, respond to stress. So yeah. I went and got some ozone therapy and immediately my body aches went away. Immediately I started having better energy. And immediately I was like, man, I wish I had an ozone tank at home and I wish I had an ozone generator. So the thing people don't realize is that viruses hide inside the cells. And in order to get to them, you, it's really hard to fight yeah. off a vir- viral infection. You can mm-hmm. get um, you can get vaccinated, to, but you know, I, I hadn't I, I had I hadn't been vaccinated since my second dose. And so um, ozone gets inside the cell and can basically act as an antimicrobial. And so it was really a game, a game changer for me for, during the, like, the third and fourth day of my sickness. Um, but afterwards, I was feeling a little bit lower energy the weeks after mm-hmm. I got um, COVID. And I was just feeling a little bit like maybe, maybe the second week was 50% energy, third week was about 75%, but I definitely wasn't back to 100%. And so I went and I did NAD plus therapy. I don't know if you've heard of this. But yes. I, I was very skeptical about it. I thought it was right. like, it's, I was like, it's a bit uh, mixed. 
results. I was like, I really uh, don't know if I buy this. I just really don't know yeah. if this is really worth the money. Um, right. But I definitely don't supplement with any of the precursors because I just, mm-hmm. I think I didn't really think I needed to. But one of my friends has a, this thing called the Conover protocol. And it's very, very specific NAD plus IV protocol. And I was like, you know what? It's week four. I'm not back to 100% yet. I want to be back to 100%. I want to be 110%. Mm-hmm. So I went and I did the IV therapy. And by day four, I was like absolutely like bouncing off the walls with energy. Like I felt like I was 20 again. And I was okay. like, well, I believe this works now because I really feel like a million dollars. So you think that really attributed to the NAD um, treatment? Yeah? I felt definitely better than going into getting COVID. I mean, and, okay. and since I did this, I mean, I did two weekends straight at this music festival and I was really low energy before. I mean, I, it, obviously it could be that I was just recovering, but I didn't, I, I really felt like it gave me a boost of energy. And interestingly, mm-hmm. my heart rate variability before I got sick with COVID was running kind of low. Yeah. Um, it was, I was embarrassed actually how low it was going. And that was probably part of the reason why I got sick. Cause I was, I was actually working too hard and I was right. pushing myself too hard and I wasn't recovering enough. And, and I, so I get system sick. Is taking a hit. Yeah, I get sick and my heart rate variability is, is since I did the uh, NAD plus, it basically has doubled. So okay. I feel like it's given me more um, resiliency in a big way. Mm. I mean, I really do. And I think I'll probably end up doing this once a year, but here's the thing. Wow. I only did it because I had some friends who did it that were entrepreneurs. And one yeah. of my friends said, you know what? This thing totally helped me with my blood sugar. And he has a, he has a platform called Heads Up Health that monitors your oh, yeah. blood sugar. I spoke, I spoke to Heads Up Health. Yeah, Dave Kurinsky. Yeah. So Yes, yes, I, I was on his podcast. Great. I mean, I didn't even know he had a podcast. I mean, yeah. shoot, Dave, I need to go on your podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm just writing that down. Because <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I'm like an advisor of this company and I didn't even know they had a podcast. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, because Dave wanted to ask more about exogenous ketones, ketone IQ, what yeah. the literature shows and all that. So I was, I was so there to sort of share. His blood sugar was all sorts of garbage apparently prior to the NAD plus. And he's like, okay. he could, he could, he saw a significant, because I mean, look, the stress of being a founder is going to affect your biomarkers. And I see a lot of founders with really low NAD, uh, sorry, really, really low HRV levels. And yeah. I'm always looking for ways to hack HRV. And the fact that like my HRV has consistently been higher since doing this therapy, I'm like, I really think this was one of the bigger things that I changed in my lifestyle. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I also, when, when I was doing the NID, which, which is really uncomfortable, by the way, um, yeah. I was sitting on a PEMF mat from this company, Centropix. And I was also using this thing called NanoV, which is like a structured water inhaler like type thing. It's like a $20,000 device. So I'm sitting there doing all these biohacks all at once in Sedona, like one, like and totally feeling like garbage going into that week and then right. coming out of it, like glowing with energy and light. So and how I, long does I, this treatment take? T- it took five days of, an, of about oh, wow. two, one to two hours of a drip every day. And it doesn't feel good to get it. It's not like you're like enjoying it. But right. the interesting thing was when I was doing the drips without these extra devices without the Centropix, without the NanoV, I definitely, it felt way more uncomfortable. And I'm like, hey, bring mm-hmm. me those other devices because I really want to try those again. And I felt a distinct difference. And so my belief is that a lot of these biohacking devices are really tuning mitochondrial health. And the theory behind NAD Plus is that with after five days, they claim that what it does is induce what's called mitochondrial fusion, which mm-hmm. is basically when your mitochondria come together and they sync up 
and they start to resonate together and they start to like do a bunch of quality control. Um, and then typically after they, after they break apart, they, the, the goal is that you want to start like, you want to do things that can optimize mitochondrial fusion. And also like when there is fission, you want to throw out the mitochondria that don't carry a charge. So a little bit of fasting can actually help with, with throwing out the, it's called mitophagy. It's like throwing yeah. out the mitochondria that don't carry charge properly. And yeah. to me, I'm not a bit, I don't do as much fasting as I did years ago because my blood sugar, my, my fasting blood sugar is really good now and I don't need as much as I used to. But if I see my fasting blood sugar creeping up, there's a, the, the question is, is am I, do I need to add fasting or do you need to cut stress? So stress can cause your fasting blood sugar to go up. And that's something that yeah. a lot of people don't notice unless they put a blood sugar monitor on. Actually, as, as we are on this topic of, of blood sugar, you mentioned earlier about menstrual, menstrual cycle. At, at some point, you have to watch um, the carb intake. But at the same time, you also have um, increased carb uh, desires. And this is a question yeah. from a physiologist myself. Why do you think the body is getting very glucose intolerant, but at the same time craving glucose at the same time, you know, for, for that, that period of time? Why do you think that is? I mean, that's a really, really good question. I, I do wonder, I mean, I'd have to look it up, but like my hypothesis would be that, you know, this, the second half of your cycle, at least what's, ha what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to get pregnant, mm -hmm. right? But instead we're not getting pregnant, but we're supposed to get pregnant. And during pregnancy, there's natural insulin resistance mm -hmm. on purpose. Mm -hmm. And it's actually physiologic. And it's desi it's desirable because literally your body's trying to shunt glucose to build a baby. Yeah, it's actually like I want to direct glucose to the bloodstream so I have enough glucose to build a child. Mm. But the problem with that is that during pregnancy, is like a lot of women have gestational diabetes. Yeah. So my guess would be that your your body's trying to cr create the conditions for being able to grow a child. Mm -hmm. That would be my hypothesis. I'd have to back that up with literature. Mm -hmm. um, because like the second half of your cycle is technically supposed to be when you're getting pregnant, yeah. you know, but if you're not getting pregnant, the question is, is why would you want that still to yeah. remain? And I don't know the answer to that off the right. top of my head. Right. But I do know that during the first half of my cycle, I can eat carbs and work out and I have way more energy and I have way more, I'm way hard. I, mean, I can just, I can kill it in the gym. Mm -hmm. But then the second part of my cycle, I'm just lower energy. I just don't, I don't feel as energized as right. I don't feel like I can do as hard of workouts in the gym. And when I do, I feel like I pay for it. Yeah. And, and, but then the cool thing about the menstrual period is that the first few days of your period, you're usually feeling kind of lower energy, but by the third or fourth day, you often feel great in the gym again. And you can often go back into the gym and like, and actually some women compete at their best, like at the very end of their menstrual cycle because they're at their, at their, their hormones are so low. And so uh, your, your, your body's resembling a man's more, uh, at the very end of your cycle. So it, it sometimes can be an advantage for competition. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how complicated, you know, um, the female body and, and, and female hormones are. And my, yeah. my PhD thesis, uh, my research was in type two diabetic rats and we yeah. specifically chose male rats to induce diabetes because of these blood sugar regulations yes. that is also in sync with hormonal regulation cycles. So that's yeah. why it's so difficult to have studies which are, you know, sort of have the same uh, male, female population versus only male uh, versus only female as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so for your book, um, correct me if I'm wrong, the overarching sort of idea is 
you know, health being defined as the ability to overcome and adapt to adversity. And yeah. let's talk a bit about that because from I, I absolutely agree on this term because if you look at infection and immunity, you know, if you survive an infection, you develop immunity towards it. Same thing when it comes when it comes to exercise, right? Progressive yeah. load. You are providing an, a progressive increase in stimulus to your muscles so that your muscles create the signaling molecules in order to adapt to that weight and therefore yes. create the strength and also the aesthetics that you are aiming for. So, um, yep. yeah, let, let's talk more about like, what do you, um, you know, what does your book encompass in that area? Yeah. I mean, I have a whole section on, on movement because movement is life. And a lot of people don't realize that there's, um, this, well, a lot of people have never even heard of this thing called the adaptive capacity model. Mm -hmm. But when I was studying um, exercise to understand, well, why is exercise so good for the body? I discovered that, A, like when you exercise, you literally send the signal to your cell to make more energy. Your body literally adapts to the signal of exercise by saying, hmm, I had that demand today. Well, I don't know what tomorrow is going to be like, but I better prepare for tomorrow. So I'm going to take that, that stimulus and I'm going to adapt to that stimulus and make myself stronger. That is the coolest thing about exercise is that you get stronger over time. You, as long as you recover properly, as long as you don't overtrain. Yeah. Um, I have had clients that overtrain, train seven days a week and their hormones get completely dysfunctional. And it's like, you really don't want to do like high, you know, high intensity exercise more than like 150 minutes a week. You don't mm -hmm. really want to do like berries, like seven days a week. That's not recommended. <laughs> yeah. It actually can cause mitochondrial dysfunction. You have to let your body recover. You do recover. And, and I've, I've eat, and this is one of the biggest mistakes that exercise people, people make, including me. I, I have a great gym. They have incredible recovery tools. I, just, I wasn't even using them for the first two months of my, of joining the gym. And then I started realizing, oh crap, like I am not recovering properly because I'm in such a rush because I'm doing too many things. So I started really adding more recovery practices and I started noticing less soreness. I started noticing better performance, just like better, you know, just overall better mental health. And then, um, and so like, I think exercise is really interesting in that also it is literally the number one anti-aging drug in the world. There yep. is not a better thing that is out there that will age you in reverse than exercise. Like I could literally see like the last two days I didn't exercise. I can like, I look fine, but I know that when I exercise, I am emitting like twice as much light from my skin. I'm literally like sending so much more signal to create more bio, like what's called skin autofluorescence. Yeah. Like you literally light up when you exercise consistently. And like, it's so powerful that every single hallmark of aging is reversed. Every single one of them through exercise. And so like, if you look at these masters athletes, oftentimes they have like, you know, if, if they don't wear sunscreen throughout their life, they, they often have like wrinkles on their face, but they have these really fit bodies. And you can age so well if you consistently exercise. Like the reason why JLo looks amazing is partially because she's had surgeries, but partially because she works out <laughs> like crazy. Right, like, right, right. She's had a nose job. She's had a facelift. She looks incredible. And by the way, no, not not even negging this plastic surgery. She looks. She's done really good work. But mm -hmm. her body looks that way because she dances and works out and looks. She's like constantly working out. Like yeah, I saw Pink. It. I saw Pink perform. She was a tra she's a trapeze artist. I don't even know how old Pink is. But she is fit. She is super fit. And it's because yeah. she's, she's constantly performing, constantly mm -hmm. dancing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, 
uh, you know, all this, all these areas of, of exercise is so fascinating. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Dr. Uh, Louisa Nicola, and we were discussing yeah. about a paper looking at exercise strength training specifically actually releases myokines from the muscles into the hippocampus, which is a region in the brain responsible for learning and memory. And it, in yep. and it increases the size of the hippocampus by 12 to 16 percent. So yeah. that's uh, imagine yeah. as we age, we have neurodegenerative diseases risks and we sort of develop, you know, uh, cognitive impairment. If you don't use your brain as often or if you have genetic disorder, imagine that effect of exercise pretty much, you know, renders this this degeneration, you know, uh, nullified. Oh, yeah. You know, what I mean, uh, yeah. it's, it's such an amazing tool and intervention. Uh, to be prescribed, which needs to be prescribed more often by healthcare 100%. providers instead of drugs and, and pharmaceuticals. Oh, I want to just add that like, there's like, you can do all sorts of kind. I'll, I'll add two points. One is that there's a bunch of other types of exercise that can change your brain. So yoga and balance exercise can change yeah. your cerebellum and actually give you more balance. Like you can literally change the part of your brain that produces balance by doing balance exercise. Right. And by doing cognitively engaging endurance exercise, you can actually improve your executive function. Like you can solve problems more effectively. Mm -hmm. So like there's so many th reasons why we should be exercising, but also keep in mind that like when I was in 2012, I had chronic fatigue. I had a bad viral infection and I was really, really sedentary. And I couldn't really do a lot of exercise. And the best thing I could do was go across the street to sauna at the YMCA, which was the first thing I did when I was, I was like literally chronically fatigued. And I started using sauna because I was like, I needed something to raise my heart rate because I couldn't really move much because I was like so exhausted all the time. And then the next thing I did was Feldenkrais, which is like the easiest exercise of all time. You basically lay on the ground and you move your arms around. It's really great. Right. And then from there, I started walking to work. I just started saying, you know what, Molly, you can walk to work. That, that is something you can do. And then from there, I started doing kettlebells. And I mean, this is over the course of years, by the way, like I did not overnight get super healthy and fit. Mm -hmm. I actually was very sedentary through my twenties because of medical school and college. And I like was an athlete as a high school student, but like lost all of my athleticism because of hard work. Yeah. And a lot of people in their twenties think that they have ADD, but they actually just need to move their bodies more to get that blood flow to their brain. And so I slowly, slowly started adding, um, power blocks and started using beach, you know, beach body on demand. And then I joined a gym and like, it took me a long time to get to the point where like, I actually had a boyfriend who taught me how to lift weights in a gym. And like, now I know how to design a workout. Now I use apps like ladder and my FitBod. And I don't, I mean, like, I really think that people think that you'd have to like overnight, just go to the gym and start yeah. an exercise program. Yeah. You have to start wherever you're at and slowly adapt. And if you're chronically fatigued, if you have chronic COVID, if you have chronic fatigue syndrome, you're going to find it really hard to exercise. Yeah. And in fact, you may feel more tired after you exercise. Mm -hmm. So one of the key points is that you have to let your body adapt the best it can over time and not overtax your body and not try to go and run a marathon after like having never run, you know, a mile, you know? So it's just key to understand that your body, you want to avoid injury at all costs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and always remember to listen to your body. That's why I always tell people on this platform is, you know, you are the PhDs of your bodies and nobody knows your body better than yourselves. Therefore, you know, try what works for your body. Um, and if your body feels like it needs to rest, go rest. But 
people do fall into the cycle where, oh, I'm so tired, I feel tired, so I'm going to skip gym today. I'm tired tomorrow, I'm going to skip gym tomorrow, I'm going to skip exercise. But over the cycle of, you know, a period of a week, a month, that tiredness and not working out actually contributes to more tiredness. Yes. And because yes. of that, you also avoid working, working out. So that becomes a vicious cycle. Yes. So be careful not to fall. And, and me, myself, you know, I've, I've experienced that myself. So I know how hard it is to, to, you know, get yourself up. And it's like telling yourself that actually you feel tired, but your body is actually not tired. So to be able to, to differentiate those two is also very important. It's and, a really big important reason why when you get sick, yeah. you don't want to lay in bed com completely. Like you want to get out and move your body if the best you can. Get some sunlight. Because that rest is one of the worst things for VO2 max. Yeah. So on the topic of immunity, um, you sort of talked a bit about mitochondria and immunity. Could you could you yeah. sort of like tell us a bit how how is that connected? Just explain to our listeners. How is mitochondria, you know, we know that mitochondria creates energy and we need energy for immunity and immune system. Sure. Um, are you talking about the mitochondria in the immune, immune cells? Or are you talking about mitochondria in the other cells? Tell us more. I mean, I think the big, I, I really try to simplify things for people because we really want things that are actionable for mm -hmm. everyone. Absolutely. So one of the most important, simple, like one of the kind of best analogies that I've come up with is like, Everyone talks about inflammation all the time and how inflammation is a problem and inflammation is the cause of disease. But like inflammation to me is like the body's alarm system is going off. The body is responding to some form of threat, some form of injury, some form of um, problem. And it's, it's mounting an immune response for a reason mm -hmm. because your immune system is designed to like take action and to do and to help you resolve the, 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 the assault to resolve the infection, to resolve the injury, right? To re but the problem is, is that we have these diets, right? These, these really, really problematic diets. These like, you know, uh, if you look at ultra processed foods and fast foods, they are just problematic for the microbiome. And there's, there's actually crosstalk between the microbiome and the mitochondria and between the immune system and, um, and what we eat. Mm -hmm. So when we consume foods that are very inflammatory, it actually causes an immune response. Yeah. It causes, you know, chronic inflammation in the body. The body's basically saying, this thing is foreign. I'm not supposed to be eating this. I don't know what this is. And we, if we eat consistently this way, we end up with what's called leaky gut, or there's, there's basically tight junctions get a little bit loose. And food particles and, and lipopolysaccharide from the bacteria in our gut get inside of our blood vessels and they basically activate the, the immune system throughout the body. Mm -hmm. The body starts getting kind of like overheated. Mm -hmm. The way I kind of describe it, when you think about an, an inflamed person, it's like their, their skin is like inflamed. You can see an inflamed skin. It's bright red. It's like it's not supposed to be bright red. Right. Um, and then you also get oxidative stress, yeah. right? So when you have... When you eat the wrong foods and you tax the mitochondria, what you're doing is you're overheating the engines of the cells and you're also causing um, oxidative stress, which is like kind of like exhaust fumes are coming out of the cells. And those exhaust fumes, they'll get, they'll, those get into your blood vessels too, and those will damage the lining of your blood vessels. And those two things alone will set you up for heart disease. Damaging your blood vessels and then having a bunch of inflammatory inflammation in your, in your body is really interesting. So lipopolysaccharide is this is this um, kind of like bacterial endotoxin. It's mm -hmm. like released out of bacteria. Should not be in your blood. You shouldn't be having a bunch of lipopolysaccharide in your blood vessels. Mm -hmm. 
But the interesting thing is that your body takes your cholesterol and it, it's, its job is to mop this up and to actually like your HDL, it's actually, it's, it's partially there to help you eliminate LPS mm -hmm. and, and LDL is part of its job is to actually go out there and to bind to LPS, right? And to also bind to those, to the damaged blood vessels and to actually like, you know, tr basically try to fix any of the damage that's going on. So when you look at the body this way and you look at people who have high LDL and ha have high, have low HDL, it makes you really look at cardiovascular disease a little bit differently. It's like the body's trying to adapt to the stress, mm -hmm. to the inflammation, to the oxidative stress, mm -hmm. to the damage. It's trying to repair you. And as a result, you get, you know, you get chronic conditions like heart disease. So it's like what, what your job is to do is to actually look at the root causes of why you're having these problems. Look at what these foods are doing to your mitochondria. Well, it turns out that these high fat, high carb foods that are high in vegetable oil, high in refined carbs, high in high refined grains, these, these are getting into your body and they are causing mitochondrial, um, like essentially they're like, if you eat this, like these two things together, it's like, it's like a traffic jam mm -hmm. in the cell. Right. You've got these, you've got the, your body really wants to kind of go in and out of carb metabolism. Right. But when you start eating these foods that are like shoving these really refined, really, really easy to metabolize and, yeah. and assimilate foods, like when these get into your cells, they go straight to mitochondria and they're like causing this traffic jam. Mm. And so now you have fat buildup because you're like, your body wants to metabolize carbs first all the time. Yeah. It just like wants to eat the carbs because it's like carbs are fast fuel. I need the fast fuel. But then you have all of this fat building up and like if you can't metabolize the fat properly, like... It, because there's no, because you're like, there's, there, it's, it's got to wait in line because it's like, I don't have time to do it both. Well, what happens is you get a lot of visceral fat. So your, your liver, when it gets taxed, when filled up with fat and your mitochondria, when they get backlog, you literally start leaking fat into your, into your viscera, which is why we, I mean, people don't really think about it this way, but visceral fat is highly linked to ultra processed food diets, highly linked to high fructose in the diet from soda, highly linked to fast food. And it's like, okay, guys, like this is not rocket science to fix. This is not even rocket science to understand. But yeah, it took me 38 years. I don't know why I wasn't taught this in medical school. Yeah. They didn't teach this to me in medical school. It took me to sit down and ask why. Why do these foods cause disease? And I started looking at the physiology and I was like, oh, all of this just makes so much sense now. And yeah. I, I feel like maybe I could be wrong. I, I definitely could be wrong in my interpretation. But this is what helped me really see these patterns and disease and understand why our lifestyles contribute to ill health and why, I mean, like just knowing why like these diets, they activate the immune system in the gut lining of this, of the, um, of the guts. Like you literally, like when you, when you start having leaky gut and you start getting food particles that are not supposed to be seen, yeah. you start activating your mast cells in your gut. You start activating the immune system in your, most of your immune systems in your gut. Right. And so like there's literally direct evidence that Western diets cause macro it causes inflammation and the inflammation starts in the gut and it spreads out throughout the body and then your mitochondria and your are basically like responsible for metabolizing all of this and they start playing a role in this inflammatory response and i think i think your interpretation is is, is uh, bang on because what we know metabolically is that in the mitochondria while it uses substrates such as glucose and fats for energy there is such thing called randall cycle Randall cycle dictates 
if you upregulate glucose metabolism, you downregulate fatty acid oxidation. If you upregulate fatty acid oxidation, you, you, you downregulate glucose uh, metabolism. So the mitochondria can choose one or the other because they both go yeah. into the Krebs cycle and then go into oxidative phosphorylation. So what happens yeah. when you have high carbs, high fat diet, like Dr. Molly said, it's in the queue. Right, you are actually yeah. having excess calories. You are having excess substrate that you are not burning off, and your mitochondria is not enough because also, you know, we know that endurance exercise, for example, encourages um, mitochondrial biogenesis. So you increase mitochondria so that you can burn all these. But if you're in a sedentary yeah. lifestyle, you have limited yeah. mitochondria, you have excess of uh, substrates, and you're not burning these off. So it's creating a dysfunction metabolically and also inflexibility that cause yes. increased risk of chronic diseases. Now, we talked a bit about HDL and uh, LDL, and for you listeners, we're talking about cholesterol, different classes of cholesterol, high-density lipoproteins, low-density lipoproteins. And we know that LDL is the bad cholesterol, HDL is the good cholesterol in the general sense. But, you know, I'm going to ask you a, a controversial question, right? Um, we always talk about keto diet and, and ke um, ketones. And keto diet has high fat and low carbs. And we have seen again and again a significant increase in LDL in um, keto diet patients. However, some people argue that is not directly um, correlating to increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Some cardiologists actually were very concerned of this increase in LDL, even though they have high HDL and low triglycerides. Yeah. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, I have been thinking about this problem for a long time personally, because the same thing happened to me when I was really working on trying to reverse my insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Cause I had it like about 2012, I think it was 20, 2014 was when I first put a blood sugar monitor on my body. And I was like, uh Oh, I have literally a fasting blood sugar right below hundred. I'm like on my way to getting prediabetes. This is not good. And it was an enormously stressful time in my life. And I definitely wasn't exercising. I mean, I was starting to exercise more, but I definitely was eating a lot of, I'd just gotten gluten-free and like I was eating a lot of gluten-free foods that I thought were healthy, but I didn't really, they weren't actually healthy because they were just refined carbs. And so I was like eating this diet that really wasn't working for my body. And as a result, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to learn how to fix this. And I'm going to keep putting these blood sugar monitors on me and just until I figure this out. So I was working for a blood sugar monitoring company. I was just like, I'm going to just like hack this. And I just, so I, one of the things I noticed was that when I ate lower carb and when I fasted more, uh, first it was, first I would just cut, first it was like eliminating sugar and mm -hmm. refined carbs. That was like the first thing I did. Eliminating wheat, eliminating sugar. That took me, you know, a couple of years to do. And that's what really got my postprandial blood sugar to improve. But then when I got into fasting, I noticed that it was really hard to fast initially. So I started going into ketosis and then I found fasting a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And so I was building metabolic flexibility that way. But I noticed my, my LDL started going up and my particle number started going up and my HDL was also, was also high. Mm -hmm. But I was like, crap. I'm like, now I've got, and I fixed my insulin resistance, but now I have high cholesterol. Yeah. So what do I do here? Right. And um, interestingly, um, exercise, like more exercise, definitely lowered my lipids mm -hmm. pretty effectively. But this, I'd say the secret weapon in my arsenal is high dose pharmaceutical grade omega-3s. Um, I, I met this founder of this company, NPure3, and he would send me his omegas. 
And I started taking like high dose pharmaceutical grade omega threes from Norway. And how, how high is like high dose? We're talking four to eight grams a day. Oh wow! Of, of like highly refined EPA DHA. I'm talking like these are big capsules. Right. And my labs had have never looked better. I mean, I really think the the anti the pro resolvent mediators and the anti inflammatory um, effects of these things really made a big difference in my health. Um, and so like, I'm just waiting for him to bring his products to America. Like there's the best, they're the best in the world by far. But, um, I do think that it's really hard to get these, um, effectively, but there is a company called Lavasa. Now I don't know where they're made and if they're as high quality, I wouldn't recommend more than four grams of Lavasa because that's the dose they've studied in the studies. Mm -hmm. Um, but you want like really, 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 really pure omegas and you want to make sure that they're not rancid because there's a lot of rancidity in the mega market and that's what makes them problematic for people to take high doses of. So um, number one thing is just really do your homework on trying to find very, very low rancidity levels. Um, and then also like, like it should be pleasantly fishy, but it shouldn't be like disgustingly fishy if you open up a capsule. Mm. It should taste slightly like fish, but it shouldn't be like disgusting. Um, and then, yeah, so like, I'd say that my particle numbers are like, Definitely not like they're de they're I think they're in like the low 1200s or so and then my lipids my LDL is like I think it's I'd have to look it up and find out but my, my total cholesterol is like around 200 now mm -hmm. which is basically around like the line of as considered normal now I'm APOE4 so I do naturally want to be more careful with saturated fat so um, I like I got a little bit more diligent. I still have dairy. I still have chocolate. I still have coconut products. I'm not going to completely cut out saturated fat, but I definitely try to make it like, like around 15% of my diet. And like most Americans are getting like 20% plus mm -hmm. because most people are eating like most modern Western diets. I also really believe I still, I mean, I don't care what anyone says about carnivore. I still really believe in vegetables. I really believe in fiber. Yeah. I really believe in eating a healthy, like having a healthy, like, really like tune, toning up your like tuning up your gut if yeah. you can yeah really important i love the company bio optimizers i love their enzymes i love their probiotics yeah their magnesium i was uh, um, on wade's uh, show as well wade interviewed me yeah. from bio optimizers for his podcast yeah yeah awesome so good i'm gonna be i'm, I'm gonna be going on that one soon too nice nice yeah, yeah so so you definitely you know just to recap you you know omega-3 supplementation really help you control that dyslipidemia that you you face when you you know go through uh sort of ketosis and exercise and, and exercise and exercise yeah. yeah i personally i lowered my ldl from 222 to 111 in six months by using both exercise and swapping my um, red meat to uh, fish to cod and, yeah. and salmon so that really helped me as well so i know that if i cut out the red meat it'll go perfectly yeah but, but i'm yeah. slightly anemic yeah because of my period i see so i still eat red meat but i think as i get older um i'm gonna slowly phase out a lot of the red meat especially once i hit menopause right i'll definitely probably be pescatarian mm -hmm. once i hit menopause because i yeah. won't need to worry right 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 i mean i i still eat them it's just you know just not as much as as before like i try to include more fish um, and plus those are low calories as well and, and for those who want to get into calorie deficit and high protein sort of meal it's very um, convenient so do you think you know for someone who is on a keto diet and having 
high LDL, high HDL, low triglycerides, is that a concern? Should they be worried? I mean, I really, I personally, one of the other things that I did was I stopped eating consistently keto. I started eating more carbs and doing more carb cycling. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, the truth is, is that the healthiest metabolism is the metabolism that can metabolize both. Yeah. And so, you know, Ben Bickman, I'm a big believer that he's just an absolute rock star. He, he doesn't consider the metabolic inflexibility that occurs from eating a high fat diet to be a problem. I personally would like to be more metabolically flexible. So I'm doing some biohacking around this myself because like I generally eat less than 100 grams of carbs a day and I'd like to be able to eat more carbs. But I really think that you need to kind of like look at your your exercise and your and your movement. And that's the best way to be able to increase your carbohydrate intake is just as you move your body more, burn more of the carbs that you eat. Yeah. So I'm focusing on getting more, um, more exercise that's going to burn the carbs more effectively. And then also I'm going to experiment with Ozempic because I, after getting COVID that last month, I definitely noticed a, a, a worsening of my blood sugar sensitivity, my insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know what? Like, why not try a peptide that directly improves insulin sensitivity? Like, why not experiment with it for two months and see right. what happens? So I, I think that it's like, of course, you can do things that's just through lifestyle, but it's kind of fun to throw in some of these experiments. Yeah. I definitely didn't put like NAD plus or Ozempic in my book because they're not studied well enough. Like they're new, they're new biohacks. But I think for my next book, of course, I'll be like adding all, a lot of the new bells and whistles. But a lot of what can be, I mean, a lot of what we can do is just really address the basics, the sleep, the exercise, the stress, the movement. And those are, those are first and foremost. I wouldn't, I mean, I would say for somebody who's like, Got on a keto diet who has sky high yeah. um, levels of, of LDL, like, and and potentially total cholesterol, you may want to focus on carb cycling, and you may want to look at the the fats that you are consuming and change up your fats, and maybe work on getting into ketosis with a little bit of fasting, and um, and maybe doing a little bit of fasting mimicking, instead of focusing directly on just eating high fat. Higher protein seems to be helpful in these cases too. Yeah. But again, you want to pick your proteins properly. Yeah, thank you very much for that as well. Because um, I know, you know, just I think in the past few months, I've, I've read more and more research around benefits of, of different diets that people use and, and they, they experience the benefits. They're like, oh, I just changed the XYZ diet and it, I really feel great. And, yeah. you know, some researchers, they actually attribute that to the change of microbiome rather than the diet itself. Yeah. Yes, the diet does help, you know, but the yeah. change in microbiome and the change in stresses, as we were talking about, you know, overcoming adversity, overcoming um, stimulus and, and stresses, you are introducing new stresses into your microbiome, into your body that your body is not used to. Let's say you are a you know primarily glucose metabolizer, you are introducing more fat now, and therefore you know you are creating a stress to your gut, uh, and that creates that sort of um, adaptation process, which in turn drive um, uh, mitohormesis and, yep. and adaptation, yep. and, and creates that antioxidant um, sort of uh, effect as well. And I'm glad, I'm really, really happy on, on you know, we are on the same page that we're on the same page on inflammation because the way you explain inflammation is exactly how I would explain it. It is a mechanism, a coping mechanism to signal that there is something wrong with our body and without it, we cannot 
um, adapt to whatever you know threat that is in our body and it's the chronic inflammation that is the problem and as you know a lot of people don't know that the mitochondria actually needs some form of um, oxidative damage in order to create antioxidant. So, um, you know, some, some researchers said, oh, ketones, having ketones in the body, it increases the uncoupling in the mitochondria. And for those who, who don't know, uncoupling is a process where there is a wastage of um, energy or electron in, in mitochondria and causing you know, inefficiency yep. in energy. And, and that increases, you know, sort of oxidative damage as well. But given the right amount of oxidative damage, that actually forces the mitochondria to increase its adaptive response to create antioxidant. So that's mitohormesis. And um, I just want to pick your brain and, and your thoughts around that. That's, that's what I understand. And, and if you, you know, have come across something different or, or to reaffirm it, um, yeah, we would like to hear some uh, your opinion. I mean, this is something that I think people should kind of understand through the lens of evolutionary biology. Like, we were literally adapted to be on the savanna, exercising all day long, moderate intensity walking and hunting and traveling and being in packs. And so we have these genes that are literally primed for not be, not eating all the time actually being in ketosis a lot. And so like, it's not surprising that we're discovering that fasting and ketosis can actually help people increase longevity. And one of the biggest problems as, as we age, a lot of people eat more and more and more and they gain more and more and more weight. And we know that overeating and eating too much and too often at the wrong times and in the wrong amounts is very, very taxing to the mitochondria. And so if you screw up your mitochondrial health, you're going to just shorten your life because your mitochondria are the batteries of your cells. They're yeah. the capacitors. They literally determine how we create charge and how we deploy it and how effectively we can. So this is part of the reason why, like, if you look at a lot of these, these uh, behaviors we're looking at in the lab, like fasting and ketosis, we're noticing that they're actually tuning the mitochondria through these uncoupling mechanisms, right? They're giving the mitochondria the ability to actually be more, uh, be more effective at, at metabolizing food and also like upregulating a lot of these survival genes, a yeah. lot of these um, protective pathways that enable us to thrive without food, right? Like your body literally was designed so that if you didn't eat, you'd get stronger, which is the coolest thing, right? And yet we find ourselves, I mean, now that, you know, all of this being said, like we didn't adapt to having the amount of stress that we have all day. Like we, I know that when I go to a music festival and I'm like walking around all day long, like I feel very calm and centered and I just feel very relaxed. And like, I know what it feels like to sit in front of a desk and not move my body all day long and like feel very stressed out because I'm like, oh my God, there's so much going on. We're literally designed to move. And so our, our mitochondria are, are primed and adapted to like be able to handle activity without food. Like the problem is, is that we have these modern lifestyles that now cause us enormous psychological stress. And so we're constantly feeding our stress with food. And that's actually inhibiting this process of coupling, right? Like uncoupling, like we're, we're just constantly in a coupled state because we're constantly eating all day long. And so as a result, we're just not really getting the full benefits of, of the, this natural programming for quality control. We yeah. have this natural programming that's like here to help us become stronger beings. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
you know, I'm one of the things that I'm doing right now is like just I'm eating earlier in the day. Mm -hmm. I find it so much easier for me to just stop eating early than to skip breakfast these days because I, I start my days pretty early right now. I'm starting to wake up around five. I see. And so I'm like really liking my mornings. And so I find it easier to just eat early dinners and not eat late and have that be the way I extend my fast and enable me to drop into ketosis more effectively. And I'm really looking at like, you know, fasting as like a tool in the toolbox as I get older to help me um, properly manage the, the changes of, of my hormones and the changes of my body. Okay, great. Um, so I know I know we're you know, running out of time. I've got so many questions, you know, I, I wanted to ask, but let's swap, you know, switch gear for a little bit and um, go back to your book. Uh, one of the things that you talked about is hacking orgasm, um, the role of oxytocin in all of this. If you could, oh, yeah. you know, it's something that I don't think a lot of podcasts would cover. Nobody talks about Nobody this. talks about, you know, orgasm. So, yeah. hey, you know, if you've listened all the way till now, now you're in for a treat because Dr. Mali Malouf is going to explain to us how, you know, orgasm and oxytocin uh, play a role in extending lifespan and, in, in, you know, just maintaining good health. Okay, so I spent a year studying love because I started a company around how do we understand the science of love to optimize health and live a long, healthy life. Right. So I was like, I, I, I was teaching at Stanford and I was like, Oh my God, I'm teaching a lecture on relationships. I am obviously not an expert. I was not an expert in relationships and I don't even claim to be an expert in relationships or love. Like my advisors who've studied love for 50 years, they're the experts. I'm the one who's trying to basically take this science that we have, mm -hmm. figure out how do we, create products and services that, that help us enhance and amplify love. Because it turns out that longevity is deeply, deeply, deeply linked to quality of our relationships. So the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our life. And we have this natural progression of have sex with people, fall in love, become attached, right? Like this is a natural progression on purpose to actually enable us to propagate the species. So when you understand that like our fundamental biological imperative is to survive and reproduce and to connect. Mm -hmm. Whether we like it or not, this is the background programming in the body that all of our cells are like running these programs, these primitive, primitive programs, whether we have kids or not. Some people pr produce companies. Like I don't have any babies yet, but I've got companies. Like, <laughs> that you know, works. Uh, some people produce art, but some people make children. And But the interesting thing is that we have this programming for a reason. Because when we come, like love is this beautiful force that drives us together to create proximity so that we can share information and resources and also increase the chances of, of reproduction. One of the biggest factors in dating success is proximity. And there's this guy that I, I want to date in another city and he's like, you don't live here. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, good point. So it really does matter. Proximity really does matter for people. But the interesting thing is that um, when we fall in love and we have children and we build families and we have, or we just fall in love and have, have partners. Mm. We have, we're, and we have healthy relationships where I'd say the, the majority of the time it's positive with the minority of the time it's negative. Um, like five, they say, they say you want to have like four positive comments for every one negative comment. So you really want to have the, the majority of your relationships be in the positive, like positive light when that, that is deeply, deeply healing for the nervous system because it makes you feel safe to feel seen and heard and held and touched that that sends safety signaling to the body. And this is through the hormone oxytocin. So oxytocin is the hormone of safety, trust, and love. 
Women are naturally oxytocin dominant. We are naturally nurturing. We are naturally caregiving. Men are a little bit more vasopressin dominant. Men are naturally designed to protect the tribe, to defend the tribe against you know neighboring tribes, to defend against like animal attacks, right, in primitive times. So we needed men to be fearless and we needed them to be protective, but we also wanted to coexist because men and women both have oxytocin and vasopressin and we, we all need love, we all need attachment. We actually do not thrive alone. The loneliness epidemic is like deeply, deeply tied to lack of human connection, lack of, lack of people feeling like they're part of a community. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we have a problem with loneliness, we have a lack of human connection. Mm -hmm. That's actually the issue. And that's because our, our communities have broken down. And so what, what does orgasm have to do with all this, yeah. right? Well, I was trying to figure out how do we hack oxytocin? How do we increase oxytocin? Well, there's a few things that you can do. You can just cuddle more. You can just tickle your arm or tickle someone else's arm or have someone scratch your back or someone get you a massage. Like those are easy hacks for oxytocin, right? I, I learned that like laughing really helps me manage stress and it's like a natural oxytocin boost. Massage, I, t I regularly get massage because especially when I'm not dating someone, like you wanna get human touch. You wanna get, you know, I, getting a full body massage gives, gives me human touch. But I was, I have had this childhood dream since I was in like kindergarten. I'm obviously a really weird human being. So like, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But I, I've always, like, once I discovered what orgasm was, I was like, man, wouldn't it be great if I could just have an orgasm by just thinking about it? <laughs> 38 <laughs> just years a remote later, control. Literally 38 years later, I, I basically, like, after studying, you know, orgasm and hacking or, my own orgasms, I, I figured it out. And, and one of the things that I find really interesting about orgasm is that the more that you learn about orgasms, the more you discover there's, like, so much more to it than just a climactic orgasm or an ejaculation. Like men and women both have the capacity to have multiple orgasms. We both have the capacity to have different types of orgasms. And I discovered I have like multiple kinds of orgasms over time. Like I, I didn't even realize that I could have a G-spot orgasm until only a few years ago. And so like that's the, that's the really the beauty of sexuality is that a lot of us are just having average sex. Mm -hmm. And ex sadly, 40% of women have sexual dysfunction which means they either have poor arousal or, or lack of desire um, or struggle to actually even desire sex, even if they are being re receiving sexual cues. But then there's problems with um, pain. Sexual pain is a huge issue for your women. And then, um, and then lack of orgasm and orgasmia. About some, it's potentially around 10% of women have never had an orgasm. And then it's actually really hard for women to have an orgasm with just sex. So like somewhere between 15 and 30% of women do like are able to have an orgasm with penetrative sex. So what I was, what I was basically trying to figure out was like, if, if sexuality and human connection are so important to health, then like, why are we not trying to optimize these? Like, why are we only trying to optimize our metabolism? I was just so focused on metabolism and I was just like, really, why do we not try to hack like our connection? And yeah. that's when I started studying the effects of yeah. social injury and trauma on human connection. And I discovered that actually childhood trauma, social injuries, you know, ostracism, like um, like racism, like a lot of these like rape and, and sexual abuse, they can actually directly affect your nervous system's ability to connect or even experience pleasure. And so I was like, man, if I could spend the rest of my life on this problem, like I would be so happy. Because I'm my one thing I, I, I would hope I'm hoping to prove 
is that there's a lot more to obesity and metabolic disease than just not eating the right foods and not yeah. exercising enough. Yeah. There's actually a lot to be said about how we handle stress has been conditioned into us based on our life experiences. And our nervous systems are always trying to adapt to, to danger and demand and like fear, fearful experiences by trying to say, well, if that thing happened to me, then I don't want that to happen again. So I'm gonna be on high alert yeah. in the event that that could happen again. And so the biggest, biggest thing that we need to figure out is how do we help people who had trauma reverse trauma? And this is why I'm so passionate about psychedelic medicine and so passionate about like, like sexual sex medicine. And I'm actually combining these two passions for my company, Adama Bioscience, which what we're trying to do is we're studying psychedelic assisted trauma informed sex therapy. So we're trying to figure out, can we de design a protocol that literally can reverse the effects of sexual trauma on sexual functioning yeah. and also apply the same principles that we're designing around how to heal trauma with psychedelics and see if in the future we can help, we can heal other conditions that are related to um, the, the body's inability to process um, trauma effectively and, and leading to physical manifestations of disease. And that is such an important point because I think it's slowly coming into light that physical and mental health are you know, inevitably tied to emotional yes. and mental state. And you know, yes. a lot of studies have looked into, for example, loneliness, as in the feeling of, of being lonely versus physical isolation from uh, society, and both of which does uh, both of which do increase um, the risk of developing psychological disorders. Um, with the loneliness feeling, have a higher tendency to increase the risk of um, uh, psychological disorders, and you yeah. know, technology. One downside of technology is that it doesn't help. That it it allows people to bypass that connection, that human to human connection. You can go straight to dating apps and whatnot and hookup apps and go straight to promiscuity and you basically have checkbox of, of partners that you want. And if one doesn't fit everything, you can, you say, well, I have a lot more choices, especially for people living in a big city. Yeah. They're like, well, next, you know, uh, move on. And, and that sort of stopped us from, even when we are having sort of intimate moments, it, it sort of, um, obstruct us from having that true connection, if you know what I mean. Like, even if it's just simple yeah. touch, a touch with intention is much more powerful with just than just a touch. Yes, like when you hug someone, yeah, and you really hug them with like I I try to hug love into people whenever I hug them. Like, just I'm just like thinking I hope they feel as much love as possible. Mm -hmm. It really and like. So this one time, this guy he had heard me on a podcast say that, and I had just come from like a really stressful situation, and I, I had just met this guy, and I had just hugged him, and he's like, I thought you said you hugged love into people. I didn't feel that. And I was like, well, <laughs> here's what's going on. I'm feeling a little bit on edge right now because this thing just happened, and I'm like really nervous. And right. he's like, wow. And he could feel the difference, right? Yeah. Like intention is so important because intention is literally directing where your energy is going. Yeah, and, and for us scientists... And for us scientists, because for the longest time, I've been so objective about data, about numbers, about measurables. Yes. And it's only recently that I realized uh, when I started picking up meditation and started realizing there is a, an intangible energy, intangible yes. connection with other people that I can nurture. And the more I, I pay attention and really put my attention into it, 
the more I realized the existence as well as the possibility of altering the state of the energy. And, and that really affects you know, the way I interact with people, with people and the way I empathize with people. And ultimately, the more I empathize, especially with my job, for example, you know, as a podcast interviewer or going on to another podcast, going on to a uh, you know, uh, presentation at a conference, that connection with my audience, that empathy, really served me very well because I almost can feel like I know what they want to know. And I feel yeah. that they, they care and they know that I care. And when it's ultimately being said and done, people want to know whether, you know, you're saying all this, you have all this knowledge. Do you actually care? Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing about this concept of caring. Okay. So like health care is supposed to, Health should help you adapt and self-manage in adversity. And care is like the piece of healing where like bedside manner, compassion, literally will like can actually change health outcomes. Mm -hmm. There was a study that showed that two minutes of compassion, which is basically actively showing that you, you really care about someone and you care about their well-being, lowers healthcare costs and improves patient outcomes in medical, in, in medical practice. So I was like, wow, like, so what I'm working on now is I'm learning how to, I'm actually I'm doing a trauma training through this company called Mindlight. And I'm literally like designing protocols that teach people how to use love to heal and how to incorporate love into a sexual healing protocol and how to actually, we're going to ideally use MDMA as our, as our drug. And we're talking, we're, we're considering designing new drugs yeah. that are more compatible with sexuality. But basically our goal is to like really bring love into medicine and to figure out like how, if we could, if we could actually envision 30 years from now, what the world will look like, like this company is not a short term, like return on investment company. This is a long, long term play. But my, my, I've, I've basically spent so much time studying love. To, like I'm now just deeply convinced that when used properly, when used carefully, when used ethically, love is easily one of the most healing experiences a person can, can have. And, and being held, seen, touched in a way that is safe is actually incredibly powerful medicine. And so, I mean, and, and it can be touching yourself, holding yourself, like comforting yourself, like self-compassion and, and really learning that like learning self-love as a practice transformed my entire relationship to food. And I'd, I'd always had issues with feeling like I needed to look a certain way and, and feel a certain way in clothes and be a certain way to be accepted in society. And after spending a year on self-love, I have zero issues with food left. I have zero, zero issues with my body. I literally love my body, whether I'm five pounds heavier or five pounds lighter, I don't care anymore. And that freedom that I have, that I like spent my entire life being really self-critical and really, really, really hard on myself to being 38 and being like, wow, I love the way I look now more than I've ever loved myself. Like that is a huge accomplishment that I just desperately wish I could give younger women. Yeah. If there's any younger women listening to this, I'm just like, and also men, cause men are highly, you know, self-critical. Like, the best thing you can do for your health is to learn to love who you are and to genuinely love who you are and not in a narcissistic sense in like a, I have your back. I'm here for you no matter what, like you are worth worthy of love. That is a, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a necessary practice. And it, it's hard because there are a lot of things that will break your self confidence. Like 
things don't always go the way you want and things don't always happen in relationships the way you want. But if you can be there for yourself, no matter how other people treat you, then you are like way, way ahead of the curve in terms of your evolution. Yeah. And one thing I learned is that self-love should not even, should not be tied to objective measures as well. Like yes. you, it's enough yes. to love yourself for who you are, period. Like as yeah. is, because, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I always share this with, um, you know, my, my podcast guests, like what I've learned growing up in Asia, you know, a lot of times self-love is tied to how many degrees I have, what school do I go to, how much do I earn? It's very objectively measured. You know, my parents are very ambitious. They, they push me to, to be the best and go for the best schools and all that. But ultimately, I learned myself that it's okay. Without any of these, I can still love myself. I think that was one of the biggest yeah. breakthrough of, you know, my 37 years of, of living. Totally, totally agree. So to close up, I've got one last question for you that I ask all my guests. Um, what is health and modern nutrition mean to you personally? Sure. Um, so what does health and modern nutrition mean to me? Well, um, I mean, health to me is all about not just this like pie in the sky moment, like I am now optimally well. It is, it, health is a, is a literal, it's a journey. Like you are literally on a path, you're either on a path towards great and better health on a day-to-day -day basis through how you live your life. Or I kind of look at health as currency. It's like health is basically this, it's kind of like money. Like you can go build a bunch of health and like through your practices. And then you can also spend it. Like I did last two weekends at a music festival partying. Like I know for a fact that partying is nourishing because you're connecting to your friends. But I also know that it like, if you, if you overdo it, like I drank for the first time in a long time, I, I felt like such crap. I haven't, I haven't had a hangover in like years, literally years. And I was hungover the first time and I was like, wow, I feel like I just spent a bunch of money on that one night. And it was just because I had drank too much. So looking at health like money that you put in a bank and that like if you get hit with a major stressor, you have backup funds, you have an emergency fund. Like that's what really good health is like. Like you actually have an emergency fund available for you to be able to handle whatever you get hit with. So even, even though I am like finishing a book, marketing a book, launching a company, designing a study, advising all these companies and super stressed, I still feel like I bounced back from getting COVID and I was able to like biohack my way into like getting not just back to normal, but better than normal. So to me, that makes me feel strong, powerful and healthy. Um, I think that like, like health is this thing that like you can build like your bank account and you can get stronger and richer in health as you just strive over time. And the coolest thing about health is like, and I'm just going to bring back this thing because I don't really feel like I answered your previous question. But like the more energy you have in your body, the more power you have to direct towards anything. You can direct your power towards cultivating your sexuality, to cultivating the capacity to have hour-long orgasms. Like you can cultivate, like you can literally train yourself to have like this, this incredible, like when you, when you have sex, you can literally train yourself to not, to like harness your energy with your breath and move it through your body through what's called the microcosmic orbit and actually breathe it so that you're, you're literally circulating it in you and in someone else. You can literally make someone feel like literally through the way you're breathing, the way you're directing your energy, you can directly affect the way someone else feels. 
So the more energy you have, the longer you live, the more power you have and the more superpowers you can actually discover within yourself. Literally, you have more human potential because you have more potential energy to your disposal to live your life and to achieve whatever you want. And that's really the biggest goal I have for people when they read my book is like, even if you aren't in great health, you don't need to do everything in the book. You just need to realize that you can slowly start adopting these habits and lifestyle changes and start becoming more and more and more powerful and strong and resilient as you get older. And so personalized nutrition is a big, big piece of this book. Like I'm a big believer in running your 23andMe, hacking your genetics, run it through my gene food, learn about your nutrition, learn about what, um, how to just eat, like learn to just cut out sugar and refined carbs and ultra processed foods, get on a whole food diet, learn to cook, and then slowly start figuring out through things like wearables, like a blood sugar monitor, what's the best food for you? What's the best diet for you? Experiment with veganism. See what happens if you eat vegan for one month. I ate vegan for one month and I felt really gar like garbage actually. <laughs> I, I discovered I actually do need red meat in my diet. Like I, I do a lot better with a little bit of red meat, you know, like I, I run low on iron. So like experiment with your diet, but the biggest simplest levers of your health are just eating whole real foods that are single ingredients. Like that's the number one thing I tell people to do, whether you are a vegan or whether you are um, keto, just don't try to avoid too much processed food. You yeah. don't need it. Yeah. Can't wait to read your, your book. And um, I would like to offer this platform um, for you to tell our listeners where can they find you, information about your book. Uh, please go ahead. Sure. Um, well, my book's on Amazon. It's called The Spark Factor. Um, my name is Dr. Molly Malouf. You can find me at www.drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y.co. And then my Instagram is at drmolly.co. And then um, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Molly Malouf MD. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Molly, Molly Malouf. And um, it has been an honor to have this conversation with you and hope to you see so you again soon. If you have enjoyed this episode, please like, share and subscribe. And we welcome any comments or feedback in either the comment section or you can fill up the Google form provided in description. You can find us at HVMN or at Latmanso for myself on all social media platforms. Both HVMN Podcast and myself are powered by Ketone IQ, the most efficient way to elevate your blood ketone levels for optimal cognitive and physical performance, as well as metabolic health. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.